Hello and welcome to our podcast series celebrating women in IT. With International Women's Day around the corner, we wanted to bring to you the trailblazing work being done by women academics in the IT department. Today, we are speaking to Dr. Tiziana Leone. Hello, Professor. Hi. Did I say your name correctly? Yeah, it's a difficult one. It's Tiziana, which is kind of people blush when they they say my name. It's, it's basically you pronounce it as T S Tiziana. Okay. Yeah. And if I say it incorrectly, do correct me. That's okay. Yeah. Thank you. So we begin to begin with to kick off. I want to ask you: Could you tell us? Uh, could you give us a bird's eye view of your career? How did you come to be at LSE? Um. I think I stumbled into things uh, across the uh, across the pathway. Um, as as a teenager, I always dreamed to travel. I used to spend all my time with the with an atlas. I spent hours in my bedroom, um, just looking at the atlas. I've always been interested in geography and traveling. I was dreaming of rolling myself into the green grass of of England. So when Maastricht came, the Maastricht Treaty, the famous treaty, um, I was so excited. And I remember the geography teacher telling me all about it. Um, I always wanted to work for the UN. Okay. I grew up in Rome and I used to uh, go by with the tram in near the FAO, the Food Agricultural Organization. And I always thought one day I'm going to work in a place where there is a UN flag. And eventually I did. Um, but I did then statistics just because a teacher told me that I did a project in that was good with graphs. So I stumbled onto statistics at last minute, just before I was finishing high school. Mm-hmm. And then I stumbled onto a PhD because I did the Erasmus, which was something that I really wanted to do. And a professor there told me, have you thought of a PhD? And I never thought of a PhD and I actually applied to just one school. Um, and you got in. And I got in, which was, was quite lucky. And then I saw a, a kind of, of, of advert in The Economist that said um, national recruitment exercise, UN, and it was the Italian nationality in demography. So I applied for that. Um, and then I went to the UN at last. Didn't like it, came back to academia. Um, there was a teaching fellow job at the LSC and I ended up at the LSC and I've been here for the last 14 years. I want to go back to the UN bit a little because it's something of an aspiration for young academics and even students within the ID department to work at the UN. You mentioned you didn't like it. Do you want to tell us a little more about that? Well, I mean, I didn't like it. It's probably unfair. Um, I think it's probably because I had some expectations of having done a PhD. I was thinking that I would do more research. I would do. But basically what I used to do was to just get my brain, put it on the desk, on the side and just write endless reports. But it was amazing. That was probably the proudest moment of my life um, to get into the UN. Um, okay. And yes, that was that was definitely something I was proud of. I do want to ask you, what keeps you going about ID? Continuously doing the research that you do, continuously doing the work that you do, what you enjoy, what inspires you to be in this sector? Well, I always thought that it was much more fun to work in development than than, than working in high-income countries anyway. There is so much to learn, so many new things, so many new things to explore. Uh, Probably the main thing that keeps me going is meeting people in countries um, one of my favorite things at the UN was definitely working in technical cooperation, um, just talking to statistical offices and their struggle and just making things more, much more real. Um, so it's, it's probably when, when you go into the fields that you realize how much more important this work is. 
but that would be the same for let's say working in gender or working in any other field why id I just feel that it's at last, I mean, I've, I've, I've been to, I was in social policy before I was here. So I've, uh, at last, actually, I feel that I'm among friends, that I'm in belonging. I mean, apart from this department being great, um, you just feel that when I'm talking about wealth or when I'm talking about the way I analyze things, people can actually understand you more. Um, and I do have a more kind of, kind of a holistic approach. That's probably why more development than gender. Okay. Could you share a memorable incident or a memorable anecdote that you would say defines your work or defines you personally? Uh, probably uh, thinking about it, um, teaching, actually looking at the letter um, <laughs> over there. Uh, probably that was a, a, a student uh, from India that um, I managed to uh, rescue from a future in uh, in finance. That's one of the things I enjoyed the most. Actually, is the kind of interaction and tutoring of students. A family thought since she was a kid that she was going to banking and financing, and she came to me desperate to do something else, and she was really into reproductive health. And when I got a letter, I'm actually sticking it there because every time I despair, I always think of her that um, thanking me for got, getting her into reproductive health and development. So probably that's that's one anecdote I like. So apart from groundbreaking work, you've been inspiring a lot of students. Well, I, I hope so. Yeah, I do get some emails from time to time. I mean, that's that's the main thing about teaching. That if I can at least get one person <laughs> to think about, um, I'm very peculiar about design development. If I get at least one person that works in a, an organization that that cares about data, that for me is an achievement. Okay. So I do want to speak a little bit more about your work. Uh, you are LSE's principal investigator in a collaborative project that is looking at reconceptualizing deprivation and suffering in wars and conflict. Could you tell us a little more? Um, could you tell us a little more about the project and why was why is the project taking occupied Palestinian territory as a case study? So this is the second project I. Um have been kind of co-PI on with the University of Buzet, the Institute <coughs> of Community and um, Public Health. Um, there is an amazing team there of researchers led by Professor Rita Jackaman, who's probably the major public health expert in Palestine. Um, I've fallen in love with Palestine 20 years ago when I first went there. It's just an amazing place and I've always been close to their, um, to their coast. And so the first project was on women, and well-being, this one is in trying to uh, conceptualize deprivation. I think it's, I think it's a very important project. And Palestine gets neglected because it's a small country, and often we just think, that in academic terms, is actually it doesn't pay off to work on Palestine. What do you mean? It's it's a small country. Often when we get reviewers back, either it's political. I mean, I've even been um, I've I've even been accused of being uh, pro-Zionist. Um, by probably a Palestinian reviewer. Um, you have to be very careful with the language, the way you, you put it on both mm -hmm. sides. Either you're not political enough or you're too political. Um, you often get the idea that um, it's not generalizable, that it's a small country, why should we care about this? Mm -hmm. But when you actually go there and see the struggle, you just think, I got to publish, I got to show to everyone what's going on there. Mm -hmm. And I think in a setting like that, it's really important to talk about mental health. 
it's just a constant drip of abuse and, and struggle and of injustice that they just have to put up with every day and and I was I was really pleased that they they have now um, data that shows the the kind of more well-being and mental health impact and I'm planning to go back in June because it would be really important to set up a longitudinal study there. Mm-hmm. They've got amazing data, but they still haven't got a single longitudinal study. So you've told us about the importance of putting out or researching people's struggles, which is something you're working on. But taking a step back, I want to speak to you about the challenges that you as, a, as an academic, as a female academic, face in the field. What are the challenges that you face in ID? on the field as part of your research do you think these are challenges are there challenges that you think are gendered well i think i think it's not just being i think that it's not just being a woman i think i've got i can think of three key components here and there is probably an intersectionality mm-hmm. and one is definitely being a woman the other one is definitely being probably from a working class background. I'm the first to graduate from my family. I mean, my mother just got primary um, school. My dad did a technical school. Um, so it's kind of working towards the fact that you feel an imposter in a way, constantly, which is what women always feel, that you're almost there. And I think only now in my mid forties, I'm finally kind of feeling this belonging and thinking I deserve to be here. But also the fact that um, I had constantly uh, from my family, well, not my parents, but more my older brothers, they're much older than me, the kind of, of thinking, ah, no, look, you're not going to finish university. I mean, I, I was told to apply for a train controller job when I was starting university because they didn't think I was going to finish university. I was filling in the British Airways um, flight attendant for when I was about to graduate just because I thought I'm not going to get any further than this. So that constant not feeling belonging. And what I definitely feel in development uh, more than anything else is probably that it's kind of a gentrified field. You kind of feel that you have to do it. You do it because you're wealthy and you do it in your kind of spare time. And that's what people that probably care more about this. I could see that definitely when I went for the um, examination for the UN, I felt out of place. It was all kind of, of children of, of um, diplomats or people in, or were from international organizations. And me from kind of working class Rome, I just didn't fit in that environment and I didn't think I was going to get it. So that's why it was particularly, particularly, um, particularly relevant. So probably I think those two elements are the ones in an ID environment that I think are the major barriers. I, I feel really inspired after listening to you. So I do want to ask you if there are students who are facing similar sorts of struggles and feeling out of place, what would you advise them? Um, well, I don't know. I think I think try as much as possible in terms of trying with internships. I think that's one of the hardest things in ID, trying to get internships in places that don't pay and cost too much. Like the UN internships are absurd. Um, but you don't need to do an internship at the UN to then get a job at the UN. I mean, try to get as much as much experience as possible in lots of many other NGOs mm-hmm. that might have something available to you and just apply and, and just be bold and just email and think 
I'm gonna do this. That's the thing. Just send uh, emails directly to people because somebody sooner or later is gonna respond. Okay. So changing gears of the conversation here. If you could change one thing about international development, about the sector as well as the department here at LSE, if you had that superpower to do that, what would you change? Well, I don't know whether I would change something. I mean, um, I think probably this is the sector where there is the least issues in terms of... Um, but probably I, w- I would encourage more diversity within this department and in the sector because they, ah, that's probably the third thing that I, <laughs> I was thinking sorry about before. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that I'm white European mm-hmm. and in development it feels as if you are the kind of outsider coming in. Mm-hmm. So that's probably the major challenge to me, even more so than being a woman, okay. being white. Um, I think, yes, probably more diversity and also to make it less gentrified, to try and get ID into the schools, into undergraduate level, to try and make people think you don't need to come from a wealthy background, or at least that's my impression, to get into ID. Um, it does feel very kind of, of privileged in terms of being able to study development in academia. So to change that in the field, and what would you change if you could? And if you had the superpower within the department itself at LSE? Within the department, I've um, probably have a massive room for, for a common, so yeah, probably a common place for the, for the a common room for the department because at the moment. Faculty and students? Faculty. <laughs> students have got a couple of common rooms, so we okay. haven't. <laughs> okay. And before we go, before we close the podcast, I want to ask you about a recommendation. It could be a book, it could be an article, it could be a practitioner whose work you really like and you think everyone should hear about them. Oh gosh, definitely. Uh, the Everyone should have on the bedside table uh, Fatfulness by Hans Rosling. It's just the best book in terms of trying to fight um, fake news and to get some proper knowledge on what's going on out there that is looking much brighter than one might think. Thank you so much for your recommendation and for taking out the time to have this conversation with me. It was great and interesting to speak to you. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.